0: Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 27. It reads, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. When Jesus hosted a grand banquet for him at his house, or then, then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house, now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with him. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says... The old is better. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Y'all can take your seats and I want to breathe one more prayer and ask for God's help as we walk through his word. Father, we do ask for just that, your help. In the same way that you give us eyes to see the truth of the gospel, it must be you who gives us eyes to see the truth of your word that declares the truth of the gospel. And so we pray that you'd help us in that this morning as we give ourselves to studying this particular passage. I pray that you would help us to see that this new covenant that you've made with your people, this new covenant that we get to participate in and be a part of is good for all of eternity. And we can rejoice in it and rest in it and praise you for it because it's the covenant that has been made by the blood of Christ which enables us to be cleansed of our sins and to have the hope of eternal life. And So we say thank you this morning, Father. I pray that you would help us to, to leave this place rejoicing in the identity we have because of the New Covenant, rejoicing that we get to call ourselves New Covenant people and then seeking to live like it, seeking to reflect you and even reflect you in the things that we see in the passage this morning. The fact that you go to sinners for the, sake of dem- or for the sake of escorting them to repentance. The fact that you go to the self-righteous for the sake of helping them to see things in light of reality. Help us to reflect you in these things. And help us to rejoice in the fact that you also are Messiah who gives freedom to your followers. Father, we all need it. We need freedom from sin. We need freedom from enslavement to the, the toil of trying to escape sin. And we find all of that in the gospel, Lord. So we say thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for what you've done, Jesus. Are oh, we rejoicing in it this morning. Oh, Lord, I also pray that in the same way you'll use your word to sustain and keep those of us who are gathered here, that you sustain and keep those of us who couldn't be with us today. got to pray for Brogan as he's dealing with yeah, just just different illnesses and, 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 and a fever. God, I pray that you would give him a speedy recovery and help him to um, return and be with us next week. Like we know he wants to be today. Lord, I pray for myself now as I prepare to proclaim the truth of your word. Would you enable me to do so in a way that is. That gives testament to the worth that your word has. Would you empower me to speak with clarity? Would you empower me to speak with boldness? God, would you bless me with a level of unction so that I'm not just up here stating facts, but so that there would be something supernatural that takes place in this moment? We know that you've given your word so that it would pierce our hearts. It continues to change us and make us new. So I pray that you would use me toward that end. I need your help, God. <laughs> I can't do this apart from you. I'm a sinful man preaching to other sinful people. And so we need you and your sinlessness to interact and do what only you can. Encourage us by your word, convict us by your word. Use your word to renew us in our minds and help us to be more faithful in glorifying you as a result of what we see here today. I pray all of this in the name of your son, Christ. Amen. It's change a good thing. It's change a good thing. If you just got nervous <laughs> because I asked that and, and you think that we're now going to change something about pioneer within the next couple of, then we probably know the answer to your question. How you would answer this question? You don't think change is a good thing. But think about it. It's change a good thing. See, depending on our personalities, change is something that can make us either excited or anxious. And I think it depends on what's being changed that determines whether or not our response to change is correct. In the passage we're looking at this morning, we see a group of people, Terrell has already told us a little bit about them, the Pharisees. And this group of people needs to learn a little bit about how change can actually be good. So in the passage, Jesus himself brings a change. And with this change he brings, he escorts the sinful to repentance and the self-righteous to reality. And also included in this change that he brings is is freedom for his followers and freshness to the faith. So let's look now at how this change takes place, beginning with verse 27. Now in this verse, we're introduced to a, a new character who will become a more regular character that we see as we walk throughout the Gospels. Levi is mentioned for the first time here. And as we know from what we see in the rest of the New Testament, uh, this man who's referred to as Levi is a man who eventually becomes referred to as Matthew. So Levi not only becomes a disciple or a follower of Jesus is here, but he also becomes one who Jesus sets aside and labels as an apostle. We're going to actually see that in chapter six in a couple of weeks. Uh, But you got Levi or Matthew here and and and. And we're being introduced to him, and we know that he becomes one of the apostles. And in being one of the apostles, he gets to spend his days ministering alongside Jesus during the time that Jesus ministered on earth. And then after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew eventually writes what we learned, what he learned and and, and witnessed when he was with Christ. And this biography that he writes about Jesus is what we now know of as the gospel of Matthew. Matthew. So we're studying one gospel. This is Luke's account of who Jesus was and how he ministered. And Matthew, the man that we see called to follow Jesus, eventually writes another one of those gospels. Now, the reason this is all a big deal is because we read about Matthew's call to serve with Jesus here in this passage. And what we see in looking at his call is that he was an unlikely man to be used by God in the ways that he eventually was. Matthew was one of the last people that you'd expect to minister alongside the Messiah and then eventually write a divinely inspired biblical biography on the Messiah. Verse 27 says that Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. Now the reason I say Matthew would have been unlikely to be used by God in all the ways that he eventually is used is because it's because of what I know about tax collectors and how they were perceived in this day. See, this passage should sound familiar to what we read back in the beginning of chapter five, when when Jesus called Peter and Andrew out of fishing to follow him. But there's a major difference between them being called and Matthew being called here. See, they were fishermen, and while fishing wasn't a glamorous job, neither was it a job that was associated with sin. But here we read that Matthew is a tax collector. And tax collectors were considered scum. Like we may get phone calls and, and, and mail from, from the bill collectors from the IRS, all that stuff like that today, and their jobs have an association with annoyance, right? Like we don't like to receive those phone calls. But tax collectors in this day, they weren't just annoying, but they were un- understood to be sinful, manipulative, abhorrent, detestable, repulsive, loathsome traitors, People hated tax collectors, and they wanted nothing to do with them. And in some sense, they were actually justified for feeling this way about tax collectors. The Roman government had basically taken over the entire world, and and they'd come in and, and, and taken over Jerusalem in particular, and then they flooded the streets with these Roman soldiers who tried to enforce Roman ways of living. And they oppressed anyone who wasn't of Roman Uh, ethnic background in in a lot of different ways, but one of the more prominent ways that they oppressed these people was through the oppression of taxation. So what they do in a Jewish place like Jerusalem is they get Jews like Matthew to trade on Jewish citizens and come to work for the Roman government. The Roman government would give each tax collector a quota to meet, and the way tax collectors met their quota was, was by going out and taxing people. But not just for the amount that they were supposed to tax them, but they would tax them over this amount because whatever they got to keep above the quota that they were expected to bring back to the government, or whatever they collected above the quota that they were expected to bring back to the government, they got to keep for themselves. So everything was taxed. And you had these tax collectors assigned Roman soldiers that were basically bodyguards. So if they showed up to you, these bodyguards, these soldiers would make sure that whatever they tried to tax you for, you actually paid up. So you could be walking on the street and, and... Say you're wearing an old, dirty headband. If a tax collector stopped you and wanted to tax you for a Tuesday wearage of headband, you'd have to pull the money out of your pocket and pay the tax collector. That's an extreme example, but I think y'all get the point. They made up these arbitrary taxes for arbitrary amounts of money, and tax collectors would get rich at the expense of the Jewish people that they themselves were descendants of. So they were hated by normal citizens for obvious reasons, but they were also hated and thought poorly of by the religious officials. If you glance real quick at verse 30, you see where uh, religious officials ask Jesus why he eats with tax collectors and sinners. They asked this question and use this particular phrase, tax collectors and sinners, because that's the way tax collectors were viewed. Uh, the job in itself was pretty much synonymous with, with sin and, and, and sinfulness. And you'll notice as we keep studying this gospel that nearly every time the term tax collector is stated, it's stated alongside the term sinner or even at times the term prostitute. They were viewed among the most sinful of sinful people. And so when Luke writes and he says that Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, is sitting at the tax booth when Jesus finds him, he's hinting to us that Jesus saw an extreme sinner amidst extreme sin. So again, I say, Matthew was an unlikely man to be used by God in all the ways that he eventually ends up being used. But we know that he was used by God. Why would God use him? Well, it's because Jesus comes, and in his passage that we're looking at, he escorts this sinful man to repentance. The verse tells us that Jesus even went out. I think that phrase is, 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 is purposeful and kind of paint the t- a picture of this being intentional by Jesus. He goes out to the edge of town where he knew that the tax booth would be set up. He goes out and he finds this sinful tax collector amidst tax booth duties, and then he invites the tax collector to follow him. Now what we see here at the end of verse 27, this, this, this command, this command for Matthew to follow Jesus? It's both a command and an invitation. What we're seeing is that Jesus extends this gracious invitation for Matthew to follow him and leave a life of sin. It's a merciful extension of an invitation in the form of a command. So he invites Matthew, the sinful tax collector, to follow him. I think about it. The most sinful of sinful people all of society would have would have would have looked at this man as if he was as worse as worse gets. And Jesus comes and he invites him to follow him. I said it a few times last week, and I think it's worth saying here again. This is because Jesus extends relational access and closeness even to those who have no business being close to him. That's who Christ is. That's what he does. That's what we see him doing in this passage. He came to escort the sinful to repentance. We see it here with Matthew. That's what we see all throughout the Bible. And if we're here in Christ today, friends, that's what we've seen in our own lives. We are sinful people that are escorted toward repentance. So Jesus, He comes to to get us and and He helps us to see that whatever we clung to before Him is not worth continuing to cling to. He comes and gets us out of our sin and He helps us to see that while sin is of absolutely no value, the way we find renewed value for our lives is by doing what Matthew did, laying everything aside and following Him. This past Wednesday, in the Midweek Bible Study, we studied uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, and in that verse, the Apostle Paul talks about his own salvation and how he was a recipient of mercy. He says that he received mercy from God. So he, didn't, he knew that he didn't go and get mercy for himself, but he was a recipient of this great gift from God. The Apostle Paul knew this about himself, and we all need to know it about ourselves, friends. We can't go and get mercy. We can't go and get salvation. We can't go and and pull mercy off of a shelf and kind of put it in the grocery basket of our lives because we know that we need it. But Christ must come and give us mercy because we can't find it ourselves. We must be recipients of mercy. Paul needed to receive it. Here we see that Matthew's a recipient of it, and the same is true of all of us in this room who are in Christ. We're recipients of mercy. And when you truly understand that, That Jesus has come and escorted you from a life of sinfulness to a life of repentance. When you truly understand that, it changes the way you view your salvation. Look at the effect that it had on Matthew. Jesus comes to him, and even though he's this, this tax collector that no Jew in their right minds would have wanted to be seen with, here's this Jewish rabbi, the Messiah, whether they knew it or not. He goes to Matthew, and he gives the invitation for Matthew to follow him. And then Matthew does what anyone who's given this kind of mercy should do. He leaves everything behind and he goes to follow Jesus. He leaves the wealth and the security of his tax collector duties, all that he would have accumulated in his tax collector career and profession. He leaves that stuff behind and he gains the wealth and security of eternal salvation. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but I got to ask you again, friends, have you left everything for the sake of following Christ? Is there something you might be clinging to? Some security? Some fears that may be holding you up? Is there something you're clinging to that prevents you from forsaking everything for the sake of following Almighty? I think the Apostle Paul said it best in Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Life is worth nothing apart from him, but with Christ, even death gains incalculable value. So have you left everything behind for the sake of following Christ? Have you seen the mercy of God in Christ in a way that leads you to leave everything? Whatever might tempt you, whatever might tempt you to to cling to it and to want it more than God, have you seen the mercy of Christ in a way that leads you to leave it because you recognize that the value of relationship with God is worth so much more? And have you seen his mercy in a way that makes you want to see others experience it? Look at what else Matthew does after being summoned by Jesus. Verse 29, he hosted a grand banquet at his house and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others. Friends, Matthew experienced his mercy from Jesus and he went and got everybody he knew so that they could come and experience the same. Luke describes it as as a grand banquet with a large crowd of tax collectors and others. See, what Matthew's doing here is is he's saying like, look y'all, this man has changed my life. And I don't know everything there is that I need to know about him just yet, but I know that y'all's lives need to be changed too. So come, let's eat and and dine and and sit with this man who has changed my life, and maybe he'll share with y'all the same things that he shared with me. I want to talk to the Christians in the room. Do y'all remember when you were initially saved? And how you had this great zeal. Everybody you knew, you wanted them to know the truth of the gospel. What happened to that zeal? I've been convicted about this myself lately. Like as the people of God, those who have this, this great life-changing treasure of truth, are we faithful in sharing it with others in the ways that we should be? I mean, thankfully, I've been following Christ for over a decade now, and, and, and I know him, and, and, and he's my Savior, so my eternity is secure, but I can count on one hand the number of times in my entire life that someone else has come to me and tried to share the gospel with me. And I grew up in the Bible Belt South where all of us apparently know Jesus. But if we all apparently know him, then then, then why aren't we sharing with others about him in the ways that we should be? If we all know him and we're all sinners who've been escorted to repentance, why aren't we striving to introduce more people to Jesus in the same way that Matthew does here? We shouldn't assume that everybody knows him, but we should labor to make the gospel, the truth of who Christ is and what he's done and how our sins can be forgiven. We should labor to make that truth so known so that nobody who knows us has an excuse to say they never heard it. And I hope that this passage provides encouragement, even for those of us who don't feel confident in our ability to share the gospel on a whim. That's not what Matthew did. He was, never, he was a newer follower of Jesus and he had much to learn And there was probably much that he couldn't even share about at this point. But he did all that he could while he could. He did all he he could until he was able to learn more. He meets Christ and then he invites others into an environment where they could also meet him. So if you don't feel uniquely gifted in evangelism, that's okay. You can evangelize through relationships. Throw a party and invite all your non-Christian friends to this party alongside your Christian friends who are gifted in evangelism, and then tell your Christian friends, like, hey, I want you to share the gospel with my non-Christian friends who are going to be there. See, evangelism through relationships, that's exactly what Matthew does here. And you can also invite people to church. Like, I know that... that People today like to, for some reason, like to say inviting folks to churches is, is, is no longer a good way to try to reach lost people. I think that's bogus. <laughs> if you invite people, there's still a lot of people in this world who will come just because they got an invitation. So if we're faithful to an invite, they'll probably be faithful to come. And if they come to this church, we're going to continue to preach the gospel. So they'll get the chance to hear the life changing truth that we've heard and had our lives changed by. Relationship through evangelism, relationship through inviting people to church. There's many ways that we can seek to watch Christ escort others to repentance in the same ways that we've been escorted toward it. So might the Lord make us faithful in this and might He use our faithfulness to bring more people to know him. Might he escort more sinners to repentance because that's exactly what he does. He escorts the sinful to repentance, but he also escorts the self-righteous to reality. He escorts the sinful to repentance, and he also escorts the self-righteous to reality. Look at verse 30. So Jesus goes to Matthew's party, uh, and he mingles and and dines and reclines with these tax collectors and sinners, and he does this because as we just looked at, that's what he does. Jesus gets involved in the lives of sinners, and he changes their lives forever. It's one of the beautiful things about our Savior that should make us praise him and, and give him honor and glory because he does change lives forever. But even in this passage, we see that not everybody praises him because of that. We're told here that the Pharisees and their scribes, they see Jesus at this party. And then they start complaining to his disciples because he's with sinners. Now, just a reminder, Terrell gave us one this morning, but just a reminder of who we're dealing with here. The Pharisees were a group of devout religious Jews who studied the law of the Old Testament scriptures. And they adopted this kind of legalistic view of, of obeying the law, and, and, and they made up a lot of their own laws in addition to the laws of God. And the scribes who were with them, they were the paid elite of the Pharisees. So Pharisees were devout, but most of them were, were kind of regular laymen. They didn't necessarily work for synagogues and stuff like that, but you got the scribes who are alongside them, and these are the folks who are paid to, to study God's word and to, to see these laws be implemented within society. So they are very extreme in legalistic religiosity you got these two groups of people, and they start complaining to Jesus' followers because he's at this party with who they have deemed to be sinners. Now, did y'all notice that when Luke refers to the people in verse 29, he just calls them others. <laughs> but then the Pharisees come along, and they slap on the title of sinners when they refer to the people. And I appreciate Luke showing that contrast because I think that helps us to see what extent of self-righteousness these Pharisees actually have. It's the first indicator that they are a self-righteous bunch of people. But they come and complain because they don't think that a rabbi like Jesus should be with these sinners. And what we see is that after they talk to Jesus' disciples, Jesus himself speaks up in response. Just a side note, this response from Jesus, that can encourage us if we're ever ridiculed for following him. He spoke on his own behalf when his followers were questioned, and that shows us that we have a Savior who will eventually vindicate us by speaking on his behalf if we have to endure persecution for his sake. I can't preach that like I want to because I don't have time, but it is a side note that's worthy of noting. But Jesus speaks to these people, and he uses this illustrative metaphor to, to help them to see that he was doing exactly what he needed to be doing. He was sent to save sinners. He was sent to heal the sick, both the physically sick and the spiritually sick. And at this party, he's with a bunch of people who were spiritually sick. But the funny thing about it is that these Pharisees and scribes themselves, they're also spiritually sick. But their self-righteousness prevented them from seeing their sickness. In verse 31, when Jesus says he came to be a doctor to the sick and not the healthy, and he came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous, That's him saying that everybody who could get time with him, they needed to be trying to get time with him. God's word tells us in Romans 3.9 that none are righteous. Then a few verses later in in Romans 3.23, it says that all have sinned. So nobody has righteousness. Nobody has sinlessness apart from Christ, which means everybody, including these Pharisees, should have been coming to worship him. They should have been repenting of their sins and pleading for him to share his righteousness with them. And if there was anybody... In this passage, anybody from this day and age that we're reading about who should have known that Jesus was the the Savior who was worthy of worship, it was this group of people, these Pharisees and these scribes. Like I'm pretty sure this is the same group of Pharisees from the last passage that listened to Jesus teach and then watched him heal a paralyzed man right before their eyes. So they see that he's got supernatural divine power at work. And they should have been piecing things together. He teaches in a way that we've not seen before. He heals people by speaking words. They should have known that this was the Messiah who they should have been worshiping. But the reason they couldn't see the reality of who Jesus was is because their self-righteousness had them in blindness. They were blind to the reality of the Messiah being right before them because they were too busy labeling everyone else around as sinners. My encouragement to us in this to not be like the the Pharisees and the scribes. And here's something we need to be aware of. This can't be a temptation of ours. Talking about us as pioneer church. We're a church who's rightly committed to and and prides ourselves on good doctrine and, and theological truth. And this is a good thing, but it can become a bad thing if valuing truth and doctrine leads us to quit valuing people. We don't have to choose one or the other. We can value the goodness of God's truth while also valuing the people who the truth may save. And I mean, praise God because I look around and I don't think we're a self-righteous people at this point, but let's pray to God that we'll never be. So we're a church who values people and truth, truth and people. The Pharisees forgot to value both. And so they became self-righteous. And with this illustration about health, Dr. Jesus attempted to escort them to reality but they didn't quite get it. We see in verse 33 that they bring up other stuff about religious practices and rules and, and how Jesus followers weren't doing enough of them. Look at verse 33. They said to him, "John's disciples fast often and say prayers. And those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours, Jesus, yours eat and drink. So they bring up these religious practices and they basically asked Jesus why he hadn't trained his followers to do more of it. And what we need to understand about fasting and prayer is that fasting and prayer are really good practices. They're really good disciplines. Even today we're commanded in scripture to pray as a people of God. And we see several examples from the new Testament church that show us the good of the practice of fasting down in verse 35, Jesus himself even says that there will be an appropriate time for these things, fasting and prayer. And we're in that time today. So fasting and prayer is a good thing. But the problem with the way these Pharisees view fasting and prayer is that they bring it up because they've made these practices more about duty and external appearance and stuff like religious status. They can't comprehend Jesus being a rabbi or a religious teacher without forcing his, his followers to constantly be fasting and praying. These are a group of people that have made fasting and praying like a source of, of imprisonment for their followers. And so they expected Jesus, this new rabbi, to come along and do the same. And here's the thing. <laughs> God never expected fasting and prayer to be this dutiful prison that his people live in. Like even in the old Testament, the the laws that these Pharisees would have regularly read fasting is commanded in Leviticus six as a mandatory practice for certain days of the year. But all other days, fasting was to be a voluntary thing that you will willfully and willingly did to grow closer to the Lord. But the Pharisees had become so obsessed with fasting and praying because it made them appear more holy on the outside that it became more of a dutiful prison for them and their followers. But Jesus comes and he wants to set people free of this prison. He came to bring change and freedom from this religious prison for his followers. He saw the enslavement that the Pharisees and religiosity placed on people, but he came to bring freedom to his followers. And the ironic thing is that the practices of fasting and prayer, they're essentially for us to grow closer to God, right? And nobody realizes it yet, but the followers of Jesus, they're as close to God as anybody could get. They were with the Messiah. Jesus himself says in verse 34, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them. They should enjoy the wedding and celebrate the groom. That was another Old Testament reference that the, the, the Pharisees should have called on to. The people of God in the Old Testament are repeated, repeatedly referenced as the bride of Christ. So when he uses this, this illustration about a groom, he's throwing a hint to him. Like, hey, <laughs> I'm the Messiah. And these people don't need to fast right now. What they need to do is to sit in my presence and celebrate the fact that I've come. But the Pharisees don't quite understand. See, they think that more religious activity means one is closer to God. But we see from the way this plays out that that's not true. A bunch, of religious activity doesn't ne- <laughs> a bunch of religious activity doesn't necessarily mean that you're closer to God. And this example shows us what our thinking should be like. like perhaps when, 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 when trying to gauge your spiritual vitality, maybe you should ask, how close am I to God, instead of asking, how much religious stuff am I doing? I mean, don't hear me wrong. This isn't an excuse to be spiritually lazy. If you're prone toward laziness in your faith, then you probably should aim for more strenuous religious activity and, 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 and spiritual disciplines. But if you're prone toward legalism and workaholism or own your, earn your salvationism, then maybe wisdom for you is to rest in God's grace and do less so that you can actually bask in the closeness to God that you have that your religious duty would otherwise prevent you from seeing. Doing more religious activity doesn't mean you're closer to God. And at this point, I want to talk just to the members of Pioneer Church. I've got two fears for us as the pastor of this church. One fear is that we won't feel the good burden of needing to do what God has called us to do as a church. So we won't do enough. And my other fear is that we'll look around and see all of the blessing that God has given us so early on in the life of this church, and then we'll think that stewardship of the blessing means to do everything, so we'll do too much. You see the contrast here? These are two contrasting fears, two extreme ditches that we as a church, especially and specifically because of the way we've begun, we have to be intentional about avoiding. We can do too little because we get complacent in the blessing that God has given us. But the other extreme is that if we forget we have freedom from religiosity in Christ, we can also do too much. So we might look at this sanctuary that seats 300 people and and we'll place an ungodly burden on ourselves to fill it up overnight. Or we may look at the fellowship hall and think that because it has a, a newly renovated kitchen that we need to be over there cooking stuff twice a week or we're being unfaithful with what God has given us. Or we'll look at classroom space upstairs and, 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 and the classrooms that are unfinished in the fellowship hall, and we'll think to ourselves, we've got to hurry up and fill these things with programs and activity, and we've just got to be doing and doing and doing. Or we can be tempted to look at other churches that already do have 300 people, and we can see all the stuff they do, and then assume that the 50 of us are somehow supposed to keep up with a 300-person church. And we can become so obsessed with doing if we don't remember we have freedom in Christ from religiosity. And then before you know it, we'll find ourselves as a church of people who are tired and spent and burned out to the point of ineffectiveness, all because we forgot to minister and live from the freedom we have in Christ. And that's not what God wants for his people. So what does it look like for us to be a church that that clings to the freedom we have in Christ? I think it looks like knowing that hyperactivity doesn't equate to godliness It looks like us looking around and and acknowledging that God is already doing so much good in this church. It looks like us expressing praise and appreciation for the good that comes in seemingly small ways. Praying for one another, fellowshipping with one another, bearing burdens together, rejoicing at the sins, or rejoicing at the wins in one another's lives. Don't rejoice at the sins. That wouldn't be good. Rejoice at the wins in one another's lives. But all of this stuff that can seem small that the Lord is at work through, We want to look at it and give him praise for it because he is indeed at work through it. These are good graces that God has commanded us to experience in his word as a church body. And it is enough beloved. God is pleased with us. Even if we're simply faithful to do these things and then rejoice as he wins more people and brings more people to be faithful in it with us over time. That's the way God has been working for thousands of years. Sometimes faster Sometimes slower, but as he works, we want to be faithful to follow him at the pace that he sets. And now, don't get me wrong; I don't want y'all to hear me say that and, and, and think that uh, we're going to be inwardly focused. Like that's that's not the kind of church we want to be. There's a world of lost people out there, and as we just finished looking at, we want to see Christ use us in winning more lost people. But we got to do so at the pace that God Himself leads us in. For thousands of years, He's been at it, and He'll continue to do it at the pace that he intends to do it at. I give that reminder because I myself needed to be reminded of it this week. We're here to play the long game and we have freedom in Christ to play it without religiosity and without the burden of hyperactivity. Christ came to bring freedom to his followers. And he also came to bring freshness to the faith. Moving on to verse 36. After Jesus addresses their concerns about his followers, not fasting and and all of this stuff that they should be doing, he reinforces his idea with what Luke tells us is a parable. This is the first parable that we see Luke mention in his gospel. We've already seen Jesus use two illustrations earlier in the passage, but we get here and Luke tells us that he uses a parable. Now we're going to see Jesus teach with many parables as we keep moving through the gospel of Luke. But the difference between a parable and a regular illustration is that while an illustration conveys an idea or paints a picture to help us understand something, a parable is more specifically a full-fledged story that's told with a specific intent to teach a lesson. So Jesus sometimes uses brief illustrations, and he sometimes teaches through parables. But when the gospel authors explicitly tell us that Jesus is, is, is teaching through a parable, what we want to do is we want to perk up and read the parable with the intent to see what it teaches, And so Jesus shares this parable here in verse 36 to 39. He says, no one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No new wine is put into fresh wine skins and no one after drinking old wine wants new because he says the old is better. So Jesus shares that parable, and the lesson we're supposed to learn from it is this. You can't force the old and the new to fit together perfectly. You can't force the old to fit with the new perfectly. Here's where Jesus shows that change that I mentioned earlier. He talks about these wineskins and these garments to show us that the old and the new both have their place and their purposes, but you can't force them together. And if you do try to force them together, you end up ruining both And neither of them fulfill the purpose that they have. When he talks about the garment, notice that he uses the word tear when telling us that they can't be combined. An old garment is meant to be an old garment and a new garment is meant to be a new one. But you shouldn't feel the need to combine them and keep all your garments together or you end up with a bad past job. I grew up in a house where there was pretty much a system in place. Whenever I got new clothes, they were worn to new clothes kind of places, church School, wherever I went, and I needed it to look nice. But whenever those clothes got old, and I got more new clothes, the now old clothes were now fair game to wear outside and to play in the yard. But if I would have taken my new clothes and said to myself something like, "Hey, man, I, I really like this 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 shirt, this new shirt. I, I love the way it looks, but I love the way my old shirt feels. So I'm going to take this new shirt and I'm going to sew it on top of the old shirt so I can wear them both at the same time." My, <laughs> My parents would, it wouldn't have been good for me if I'd done that. <laughs> and it's because it, it wouldn't have made any sense. And what Jesus is telling these Pharisees is that it won't make sense for them to hold so tightly to the old practices they've known that they can't embrace the change in the new era that he's now ushering in. If you tear a new garment and put it on the old, you end up with a bad past job. If you take new wine and put it into an old wine skin, When the wine ages and expands, the old skin bursts because it has already expanded to maximum capacity, and you end up with spilled wine. And in the Pharisees' case, if you take a new covenant and try to force an old covenant to fit it perfectly, you're going to end up with religious confusion. That's what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to take the old covenant and the new covenant and force them together. And I think this parable is frequently taken out of context and people make it sound like Jesus is teaching that any and every new thing that comes up should be embraced. So, for example, people may say stuff like, hey, man, all the cool churches live stream and, and they do online church now. You, you don't need to, to physically go to church anymore. Get yourself some new wine skins. Or people may say something like, hey, man, have you seen how cool smoke machines look for a worship set? I got to get a worship, y'all got to get a, a smoke machine. It attracts all the young people. Don't hold on to those old garments. That's not what Jesus is saying. Not every new thing is good for the church. What Jesus is referring to specifically is the new covenant that God was now making with his people. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet prophesies that there's a coming day when a new covenant would be made and would be made and in it would be the promise of God, forgiving sins and iniquities. And then later in this gospel, we're looking at right now in Luke 22, Jesus sits down for a meal with his disciples and he tells them that the cup of wine he was drinking was a representation of the new covenant that will be sealed by his blood. So what he was making clear is that these Old Testament rituals and laws and and all this stuff that the Pharisees were living by, it would no longer be the means of maintaining closeness with God. It would be his blood that keeps us close. Hebrews 10.10 says that we're sanctified through the body of Christ being offered on the cross once for all time. In the old covenant, this covenant that the Pharisees knew there had to be continual sacrificing of animals for the sake of sanctification. And those animal sacrifices eventually wore off. They were imperfect animals that gave an imperfect temporary sanctification from sin. But with the new covenant, Christ has shed his blood And he's given himself up as a perfect, eternal sacrifice for the sanctification of sins. And unlike the animals in the Old Covenant, after he was sacrificed on the cross, he didn't stay dead. But he rose from the dead and defeated the curse of sin, which is the reason the sacrifices were needed in the first place. See, Jesus makes it so that no more, so that we have no more need to bring our own sacrifices to be made right with God. But we can repent and forever be hidden in Jesus. Because he gave himself as a sacrifice and he goes to God for us. And do you know what the great joy of this truth with the new covenant is, friends? The difference between us and those of the Old Testament is that because Christ ushered in this new covenant that we're reading about right now, we now have a faith that no longer requires freshness. We now have a faith that'll never get old. We've got a faith that won't grow stale. So the Pharisees were missing out because they could have traded their old still rituals for faith in the new covenant that is ever fresh into eternity. That's what we get with Jesus. And I think it's worth saying this as we look at this in the passage. I know there's this new trend of, uh, among young Christians to, to do this whole deconstruction thing. I want to encourage you all to be aware of what that means. I think there's two kinds of deconstructing we can do. There's a deconstruction of our faith and what truth and the gospel is. Then there's a deconstruction of practices that have been placed on top of that faith. So there's deconstruction of orthodoxy and there's deconstruction of orthopraxy. And my fear is that a lot of the deconstruction we're seeing today are with people either conflating the two or getting mixed up in the process. Like there are poor practices that have been piled on top of the Christian faith. And we want to do all we can to pull those practices off of the faith. Like, if practices don't line up with what God's Word teaches, then those practices should be de- deconstructed. But the gospel I just shared, and the commands we see God give in the New Covenant, that stuff doesn't need to be deconstructed. Paul tells us time and time again in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, the church is repeatedly told, hold fast to the paradoxes or the traditions that have been passed down to you. And the reason we're told this is because The good new covenant traditions are what allow us new covenant people to experience joy and flourishing in Christ. And it burdens my heart to see that there are so many young Christians who are losing their faith and and, and walking away from these good traditions because they think that ridding their faith of bad practices means getting rid of the faith in itself. That's not true. That's not what Jesus is saying. And so listen, friends, if you encounter a conversation about deconstruction attempt to help people understand what that actually is. There's a difference in deconstructing practices and deconstructing faith. We want to cling to all that God says is good. We want to embrace the change that he brought right here in the Gospels. Because what we're seeing here is that he brought an ever-fresh faith and it carries us into eternity. So again, I ask, is change good? It was when Jesus brought it in this passage. The change he brought included him escorting the sinful to repentance and the self-righteous to reality. And it also included him bringing freedom to his followers and freshness to the faith. So let's be grateful for that change and rejoice in it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we no longer live and seek salvation by the laws and rituals of the old covenant but we live and experience freedom because of what Christ has done in the new covenant. I pray that our affection for him and for you would grow as we think about that. I pray that as our affection grows, that we'd be more faithful to live obediently to all the commands of his word as a result of our seeing the joy of, of evidently being new covenant people. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be faithful and sharing the gospel with the lost so that more people can experience this freedom as a result of the covenant that Christ brought. Help us to to be burdened in the same ways that we see Matthew in this passage over the lost who are in need of salvation in Christ. And then give us opportunity and the, the, the will and the boldness to share when opportunity presents itself. And then Lord, we do pray that as a result of it, You'd be faithful to do for many what you were faithful to do for Matthew in this passage. Extend the invitation for them to follow you. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Christ. Amen.